0: Hey science nerds, welcome back to another episode of MRSA Podcast, where we explore research in various science disciplines at McMaster University and try to bridge the gap between Canada's most research-intensive university and the next generation of science leaders that it's fostering. My name is Jadeep and I'll be your co-host alongside Daphne.
1: Hello, everyone. Welcome again to MRSA Podcasts. So today we're honored to be joined by Dr. Robin Cameron from the Department of Biology. Dr. Cameron is a professor of plant biology and is the president of the Canadian Society of Plant Biologists. Her research focuses on plant microbe interactions, specifically plant immune responses in the model organism Arabidopsis thaliana. Dr. Cameron is interested in investigating different immune responses such as age related resistance or AIR for short. Systemic Acquired Resistance, or SAR for short, and PAMP-Triggered Immunity, or PTI for short. She aims to uncover the molecular mechanisms underlying these responses, which has important implications for food security and climate change. So Dr. Cameron, it's a privilege um, to have you on the podcast today, and thank you for joining us. So today we'll be delving deeper into your research by discussing how you study plants in your lab, but also discussing um, the different plant immune responses, including, like I said, age-related resistance, or ARR for short, systemic acquired resistance, or SAR for short, and we'll also talk about the broader implications of plant biology research on society. And finally, we'll end off by talking about the role of undergrads in your research lab. But before we get into that, would you be able to tell our listeners a little bit more about yourself with respect to your academic journey, your research interests, and how you ended up here at McMaster?
2: Sure, I'd be delighted to. So I started as a co-op student at Waterloo and I just knew that I was interested in biology. And I already knew I was interested in plants because my grandparents were farmers. So I took lots of plant biology, biochemistry, molecular biology, <clears throat> and at the end of that co-op experience, I realized that I wanted further education because I, I wanted to run my own research lab maybe one day. That's what, what I was thinking, you know, what do you know that at when you're in fourth year, you're not so sure. So I went to a McGill to do my PhD and I did it in microbiology because at the time molecular biology of plants was just starting to become a field. We had just learned how to transform plants and that was in 1985 when I went to grad school. So I thought I would learn molecular biology in the original model organism for molecular biology and that is E. coli. So I studied transposition, how genes jump around in in, uh, bacteria in E. coli and learned lots of good molecular techniques, but I knew I always wanted to get back to plants. So as I was nearing the completion of my PhD, I looked around for various plant labs and I had decided I wanted to go to the States um, because I had a cat and I wanted to be able to take my cat with me and I didn't want to put him in quarantine if I took him to the UK or Europe. So (laughs) I went to San Diego uh, to the Salk Institute to work in a very famous plant lab, and it was super fun, made lots of great connections, learned a lot about plant molecular biology, and was able to contribute my microbiology knowledge to start studying plant microbes in that lab. So they weren't good at microbiology. So I brought that to the lab, and I in, I, I invented a model system, the Arabidopsis Systemic Acquired Resistance Model System, and I've been studying it ever since. And so that postdoc was for two years. And then I took my project and drove to Oklahoma, a sister lab at the Noble Foundation and continued my project in the very interesting and sort of exotic place of Oklahoma. You know, it's the deep South in the US. So it was eye-opening. It's also quite beautiful. So after that, I was looking for jobs and I interviewed in industry and I interviewed in academia because I wasn't sure of what I wanted to do. And sometimes people think, oh yeah, I wanna be a professor. Well, you don't always know and you don't always get the opportunity or maybe they think I wanna be in industry. So if I had really wanted to be in industry, I didn't get those jobs. I didn't end up in industry. But that was okay. I ended up in academia, and I'm actually very glad because I also love to teach. And my first job as an assistant professor was at the University of Toronto and I was there for seven years, and it was good, I made lots of contacts. But then I came to McMaster, where I found my real home. I really love McMaster. I love the way, you know, I can know who the president is and the dean. That wasn't true at U of T, so big. you know, so many students, you can meet your students in the grocery store at McMaster and in Hamilton. That wasn't true in Toronto. So um, yeah, that's how I got to McMaster. And I've been working on plant immunity. And more recently, we've been working on the microbe side of things, like how do the microbes make a home in the very unpleasant environment of the leaf intercellular space. So we've been doing some work on that. So maybe that was too long. <laughs> oh, definitely. Oh,
0: definitely not. Thank you so much for sharing your uh, introduction, Dr. Cameron. We can just tell by the way you were explaining that, you know, how passionate you are about plant biology and biology in general. And we hope to touch upon some of the points, uh, points that you actually uh, talked about in your introduction with respect to Immunity, as well as the Arabidopsis thaliana system. But before we get into that, we, I w- we wanted to start by asking a few general questions about uh, plants in general, as well as the background theory that's, vol- that's involved in the research at your lab. So, my first question to you is why are plants so cool and interesting to you, and what has drawn you toward them as your research focus? So,
2: I mean, I've always loved nature. And of course I loved animals and insects and things too, but I always loved plants. And my, my grandparents were farmers, so I visited the farm. So I have an innate interest. But when I was in an undergrad, I would go to the lectures and we'd sit in the dark lecture hall and they'd be telling us about all the amazing things that plants do, which I didn't really know too much about cause I didn't have a good high school biology teacher. And, you know, people think plants just are there. They do nothing, but they're doing so many things. We just don't know. We have to actually look carefully inside them to see what they're doing. And as they're growing, they are moving a different kind of locomotion to animals. So if you put a time-lapse camera on, say, a bean seedling, it does a lot of growing in different directions. So it is moving throughout a 24-hour period. So I guess that's why I think it's so exciting. They're they're such interesting creatures, so different from animals, but there are some similarities, of course, um, because they all evolved from a common ancestor. Um, But also, I mean, plants are so important for everyone. We all eat them, or we eat animals that eat the plants. And really, we are omnivores, so we need plants and animals to have a, a nutritious diet. And we still use plants for a lot of our, you know, building materials. A lot of homes are still built with wood timbers. And we need plants more and more because they provide ecosystem services for us. And we are starting to destroy the ecosystems and it's affecting the climate and the planet and all of that sort of thing. So plants are the most important organisms on earth, really, because they're the only ones, and some microbes, that can fix um, CO2 using sunlight, solar energy, and make food. Very, There aren't any animals that can do it, a few bacteria can as well. So we would be nowhere without them as humans. Yeah, I
1: definitely think that plants are underlooked and we should value them more. They're definitely super, super cool. And I think you mentioned before a little bit about looking at your research with um, plant microbe interactions. So could you explain a little bit more in depth um, what you study in the lab in in respect to um, how plants um, respond to infection by um, different microorganisms? Sure. So. In my lab, we
2: use a little lab rat of a plant called Arabidopsis, and it's a little mustard plant, so it's related to mustard and canola and cabbage and broccoli and all those things, but its genome has been sequenced. We have lots of genetic tools. We have a lot of ways to use it to to do in-depth mechanistic studies, so that's why I use it, and I use a bacterium who all its genome has been sequenced, where there's lots of tools and mutants available. So it's a perfect pairing. And the pathogen that I use infects leaves. So leaves are easy to access. I don't study roots because they're hard to access, because they're in the ground. And you need a lot of specialized equipment to be able to study root microbe interactions. And we can grow our bacteria in a test tube, and we can grow like 10 to the ninth of them overnight. Whereas if we were working on a fungus, we'd have to grow them on plates, it might be a it's harder. So that's one reason why I use the model system I do. So I can ask interesting questions about how do plants perceive that a pathogen is present? And Actually, in my lab, we don't directly look at that. There are other people that look at all the receptors. So plants have many receptors to perceive things like bacterial flagellin. Many bacteria have flagella to swim around. Plants have a receptor for that. So they can realize, haha, a bacterium has infected me. What should I do? And then they initiate a defense response, but they can also perceive fungal molecules to know they've been infected by a fungus or a virus or even sometimes by insects. They can tell that an insect is not just chewing on them, but they can actually perceive the particular insect. So people work on that. And I guess I would say I'm more interested, there's all these receptors at the top of the pathway, they're signaling, signal transduction, people work on that. I'm more interested in what's at the bottom right now in age-related resistance, we're interested at what is it that makes a mature plant resistant to a pathogen that it was susceptible when young? Like, what is going on there? What has changed? And I would say, for many years, we didn't know. We knew what was important at the end that the plant actually makes an antimicrobial compound and sends it out into the spaces between the plant cells in the leaves, because that's where the bacteria grow, and acts as an antimicrobial agent against the bacteria. So we knew that, so we knew kind of the mechanism, but we had no idea what was different between young and mature plants. And more recently, we've done RNA sequencing of young and mature plants. So we've done some transcriptomics, so we saved up money, and paid the price to do RNA sequencing, which is much cheaper than it used to be. It, it cost billions of dollars to sequence the human genome, and I just sequenced a bunch of transcriptomes, I don't know, maybe 10 of Arabidopsis for $10,000. So the prices come down, but $10,000 is a lot of money. So. That transcriptome has shown us a lot of interesting information and has actually shown us that ARR shares components with another pathway I've been studying for years, systemic acquired resistance. And I have to tell you, you know, I've been doing research on this for over 30 years, and I am so surprised that these two pathways share components. It's nice. After 30 years of research, surprise, they're not that different. I mean, there's some differences, but there's a lot of similarities. So the transcriptomic data really gave us a lot of information that hinted at these things. And then we actually had to do wet lab experiments to validate the results. So super exciting. I'm actually going to be talking about this at the Joint meeting of the Canadian and American Societies of Plant Biology in Portland, Oregon, this summer. Because as president of the Canadian Society, I get to have my own symposium. Wow. <laughs> oh, so, it is called Tangled and Interwoven Immune Pathways because I found that there's this interweaving of ARR and SAR, mm-hmm. but other people in the field were all coming to the same conclusion. There's actually a lot of tangling and intermingling of other pathways as well so the one you mentioned Daphne PAMP triggered immunity and another one effector triggered immunity it appears that plants have all these receptors they init, they respond to different pathogen molecules there's a number of signaling pathways but there's all this crosstalk and then at the bottom a number of similar things happen so it's kind of something we've suspected for years, but now people actually have evidence to support their um, hypotheses. However, I will say no one thought that ARR and SAR were the same were similar, so that is completely surprising
0: and exciting. <laughs> That's awesome to hear, Dr. Cameron. Thank you for sharing that. Right, it's it's really nice to hear that how much say you have because of how of your incredible history of studying plant biology, and we're excited to hear about any updates about the symposium that you have. And just to backtrack a little bit, you actually touched upon uh, the two main uh, uh, immunological pathways that we want to focus our discussion on for this podcast. So just to backtrack just a little bit, just to give some more clarification for our listeners, how does a plant's age impact its resistance to pathogens? So could you introduce to our listeners again about this phenomenon of age-related resistance or ARR?
2: So it is a phenomenon that's been observed in a number of plants, including some crops for many years, but nobody really studied it at the molecular level until my lab started studying it in Arabidopsis. And there's some variety, you know, like barley, maybe when it's young, it's susceptible to a certain fungus, but then when it ages, it's resistant. And then in Arabidopsis, it's The young plant is susceptible to a bacterial pathogen and then when it ages, it becomes resistant. So there's variety out there and whether the pathways are all the same, we don't know because really it's only being studied mechanistically in Arabidopsis. So that's a future goal to look at that. But yeah, what is it about the mature plant? I have some ideas now and one of them is that, The plant may, as it ages, it seems to become able to get ready for a pathogen infection without having seen a pathogen. And that's actually the definition sort of of systemic acquired resistance. And so now I'm talking about that, but I kind (laughs) of have to. (laughs) So SAR is where an initial infection say in one leaf produces signals that move to distant leaves. And those distant leaves become molecularly alerted or ready for the next infection. Mm -hmm. And there's chromatin modifications at promoters of defense genes. So now the promoters are open. So the next time the plant sees a pathogen, they're ready for the transcription factors to land and RNA polymerase to transcribe the gene really fast. So that's kind of what SAR is all about. There's this priming mechanism. So now we have hints that ARR is also a priming mechanism, but in the absence of any large pathogen infection, and it's, that's something we are actually looking at. We're going to look at young plants from three weeks all the way to seven weeks, because certain genes are being turned on, at least in the mature plants, in the absence of a pathogen that are important for defense to the pathogen. So when do they come on? When the plant is five weeks, six weeks? So that's something we're looking at to really see if age-related resistance is a priming type pathway like systemic acquired resistance. Yeah, so no. that's the sort of that's like mind blowing because I never
1: ever mm-hmm. dreamed that they were the same. I think that's really cool because to think that as they age, maybe there's some chromatin opening of certain yeah of certain genes, yeah. yeah. But like it's interesting that it's not really in a response to a certain pathogen. It just kind of half yeah. <laughs> I guess it's it's crazy, and I think that um, you kind of mentioned that you're looking at three week old plants and seven week old plants. So what does a typical like ARR experiment look like in your lab? Right, so
2: would grow plants for three weeks, three and a half weeks or so. They would test to see how susceptible they are to the bacteria and they should be susceptible. And then they'd have another set of plants that they let continue to grow to six or seven weeks when a, age-related resistance should have been initiated and they test them, they infect them with the bacteria, they extract the bacteria out of the leaves, they do cereal dilutions and plate classical microbiology, then they count the colonies. And those mature plants should have at least 100-fold less bacteria than in the young leaves. They should be very resistant. So that's how we measure resistance is, you know, how poorly or well did the bacteria do? If the plant is susceptible, the bacteria will grow to high levels, if the plant is resistant, it will grow, they will grow far less. So that's a typical experiment. And that's the thing in a plant lab, even though we're working on Arabidopsis, you know, it takes six to seven weeks before you get all your data. For age-related resistance experiments, for SAR experiments, it's more like four and a half to five weeks before you get your data. So it also means we need to plan carefully so that students get enough experiments done and no one in my lab has all the growth chamber space they want so it's not like you can do an experiment every week you don't have enough space because plants take space and that's one thing about being a plant
0: biologist
2: we never have enough space we're always looking for more
0: A I don't know if
2: in, I answered everything that
0: you uh, want. <laughs> oh no, that that was a great response, and I actually had a follow up question on that, basically regarding the logistics of these experiments that you carry out in your research lab. My question was, how do you control for uh, different variables in your typical experiments, such as sunlight, humidity, and temperature when growing your plants, as as well as the fact that you said about not having enough space. How do you how else do you, how are you able to control these other variables? So we have.
2: These growth chambers, which are boxes with lights, and they have they control the humidity and the temperature, and there's air circulation. So that's how we maintain the temperature and the light levels, and whether and our plants, whether you grow them in long days like summer, 16 hour days, or whether you're growing them in a shorter day, if we're talking about a temperate climate say nine hours of light. And we do, we usually grow our plants under nine hours of light so that they grow more leaves and don't flower because Arabidopsis is, is um, induced to flower under long days because it's a summertime plant. So those that's how we try to maintain those conditions, but it's not always perfect because our chambers are affected by the seasons. So In the winter, all our buildings in Canada are drier because of winter. So that means the humidity in the chambers is a little bit lower because the air going into the chamber has lower humidity and the chambers work by adding humidity back. So there is seasonal variation that does affect our experiments. And because plants can't move, they are very sensitive to changes in their environment because that's how they get information to know what to do next. They can perceive humidity levels, they can perceive temperature, and they can respond. So even if it seems like nothing has changed to us, sometimes they don't respond the way we think because something's different, even very slightly. So one also has to have patience when working with plants, right Daphne?
1: Yeah, definitely. And I guess like my next question kind of relates to this and like, What happens when we overwater our plants, like, or underwater our plants even? (laughs) How does that affect our experiments?
2: Yeah, so, you know, it's possible that what's going on during age-related resistance is that even when we treat our plants as well as we can, so we don't overwater, we don't underwater, they have the right temperature, they have the right soil, we fertilize them the way we're supposed to. It may be that there's many stresses throughout that three to six week time period and that's what is leading to the priming of the plants and the reason i'm starting to think that is the data we have but more and more people are finding that stress and they've actually done experiments i mean i've known this happen for years because of my undergrads and grad students if they underwater their plants even Mm -hmm. just a bit it makes the plants more resistant. Yeah. (laughs) So it seems that stress induces plant immunity. And now there's evidence of crosstalk between abiotic stress, like not enough water or too much water or too much heat or whatever the abiotic stress is, that there's crosstalk between those pathways and plant immunity. So we actually, there's people working on this now. And I remember trying to work on this with some undergrads many years ago. And when we tried to get the undergrads to stress the plants, they couldn't.
1: (laughs) That's interesting.
2: Right. But when we don't want them to stress the plants, they do. (laughs) Because it's hard. It's hard to learn how much water to add because it changes throughout the year. So in the summer, there's lots of humidity. You don't need to water your plants as much. And then it changes as we get towards fall. And you need to give them more water in the winter because there's more evaporation because everything's drier. And that's not something you can say you have to give them one liter every day. You can't, it changes. And so it's hard to learn that. It isn't that you can't, but it's
0: not, there's no recipe for it.
2: One has to learn by doing.
0: That's true, right? And this this discussion just basically highlights how you know there's a lot of factors that influence the way that you grow plants in a research experiment. So that's really interesting to uh, talk about. And I wanted to return our discussion to uh, one of the uh, uh, immune aspects of plants, which is uh, SAR, so systemic uh, acquired resistance. So to recap, an uh, infection SAR is defined as when an infection in one plant area can lead to increased resistance in distal tissues after a secondary infection so yeah. my question to you is we wanted to talk about this uh, lipid transfer protein that you uh, has oh. been seen in your papers uh, dir1 so could you just introduce our listeners to what exactly dir1 is and how it's related to uh, systemic acquired resistance or SAR
2: right so I started studying dir1 when I was a postdoc in San Diego I did a mutant screen looking for sar defective mutants because we didn't know what the genes were. And I found DIR1 after quite a few years and we cloned the gene. It took, it was hard because it was the olden days. It was hard, but we cloned it. We found out what it was, a lipid transfer protein. And that blew my mind because I didn't want to work on lipids. I don't know anything about lipids, but that's what genetic research does. You ask the plant to tell you what is important You knock something out and then your response doesn't work. And then you find out what the gene is. So then I had to learn about lipids. So I did. And, uh, you know, I, after all these years, I I slayed DIR1 and knew what it was in 2000. I still don't know exactly what it does, but I know sort of what it does. So my lab was able to show that When an initial infection happens in one leaf, DIR1 protein accesses the phloem, which is one of the communication systems of the plant, and moves down that initial leaf, down its little petiole, which is the stem that connects the leaf to the main stem, goes up the stem, which in Arabidopsis is like five millimeters, is tiny. It's one centimeter. Goes up the stem to the next leaf, And somehow DR1 is perceived in those leaves to initiate this primed or alert status where the chromatin opens and a few other things happen. So I don't know what happens to DR1 in those distant leaves. It's really hard to figure out because there's very little protein that actually gets to the distant leaves. So biochemically, when there's not much of something, it's hard to study it at the biochemical level. So we're trying to concentrate, I mean, we've proven that it moves and we've proven you need this protein for a a full SAR response. Now I'm trying to do some biochemistry in the induced leaf because we predict that, you know, DR1 is everywhere in the plant, as you might expect a signal that is, the plant doesn't know which leaf is going to be infected. So you'd expect the signals that move to the distant tissue should be everywhere And that somehow when the leaf is infected, something happens to them and now they access the phloem and they move. Mm -hmm. So we predict that there's something keeping DR1 from entering the phloem. Maybe it's in a protein complex and or maybe there's a protein complex that forms that allows it to access the phloem. So, you know, get into the phloem, which is a number of cells stacked on each other and then move. So we're trying to now develop some tools so that we could find out what proteins DR1 interacts with. And we want to tag it with some small peptides so that we we wouldn't have to use our own DR1 antibody. We could use these peptide antibodies to be able to see it in the plant, maybe do immunolocalization, but also perhaps, we can collect flomexidates, so we can see if it's entered, left one leaf and entered, got to the end of the stem of that first leaf, we can detect it, and maybe we could then detect what proteins are associated with it by doing some immunoprecipitation experiments. So we're trying to set up the tools to allow us, which means making transgenic plants, which takes a year to make the one you need, we're trying to set up some tools to allow us to do that to find out who is dir1 playing with before infection and after
1: infection so you're saying that dir1 itself is the signaling molecule or it's binding to like right. as a lipid transfer protein cuz it has that hydrophobic core
2: yeah We don't know. So yes, DR1 is a lipid transfer protein. It has this hydrophobic pocket that has been shown for other lipid transfer proteins to bind lipids. And in vitro, DR1 binds lipids. But these LTPs are very promiscuous. When you take them out of the organism, and there's some in people, I think too, they just bind on everything. So to actually figure out what they do in vivo is, Right now, impossible. We don't know how to do it. So it's possible, yes, that DR1 is binding a lipid or some other small hydrophobic molecule and carrying it to the distant tissues. But that is, I have come to believe that technologically, we can't do that yet. And certainly my lab can't do it. We're not super biochemists. We do a bit of biochemistry. We're jack of all trades. We use whatever we have to to answer our biological question. But we're not experts. So that's why we're concentrating on what proteins DR1 interacts with, because we are we have some more expertise in that area.
0: Yeah, that's truly fascinating. Thank you for sharing that. And this basically just goes to show how much we don't know about plants, right? It's like, there's still so much, even after you've been researching for so long, there's still so much more though that, that's uh, left to be deduced about plants, especially dir one right? And. Mm-hmm. So to transition to one of the next themes that we wanted to talk about in this podcast, we want to talk about a bit of the broader implications of the research that goes onto your lab to wider society, right? So mm-hmm. sort of a general question that I wanted to ask you was why should we be interested in how plants, you know, defend themselves against society? What's the greater relevance or important or against pathogens? Sorry. So why should we be interested in how plants defend themselves against pathogens and what's the greater, importance or relevance of all this work to larger society
2: right well we the reason is because we want to enhance the plant immune system in crops with to reduce pesticide use and enhance crop yield because we lose depends on who what statistician you read you know 20 to 30 percent of crops are lost every year Pests and pathogens, so insects and pathogens, and as the climate changes, especially in here in southern Ontario, we're, you know, we're the most south in Canada. So more and more diseases are going to be coming north on food trucks with food that are going to get out into our fields, and there will be more problems with. Um, Crop yields like real, there could be, you know, crises where all the corn gets wiped out in an area. But I mean, right now, global food supplies are global. So, in general, there have been, you know, um, problems with crops in the past. A few years ago, I think there was a problem with coffee. But then people bought coffee from other places in the world. It was more expensive because it was less available. And coffee isn't a necessity, although many of us would think it is. We could survive without it. (laughs) We wouldn't like it. Um, But, you know, there could be issues with real major crop devastation. So... And the other thing is we we do need to use fewer pesticides because there's obviously issues with some of them. Some of them are are less harmful because they're quite specific to a particular pest. But some of the t- sometimes we have no good pesticides against a particular pathogen. And so if there's a real bad infection and it spreads across a number of fields and usually Farmers plant a lot of the same things. Like in Ontario, if you go out around Hamilton, it's corn and soybeans. That's the greatest amount of, and some wheat. And then there's some regions that grow vegetables. um, And there's Niagara that grows fruits and what have you. But, you know, if there was a corn pathogen, it would wipe out and it was really virulent and it spread really well. And say we had the conditions that summer that help spread it and disperse it because the environment's important, we could have uh, uh, our corn crop be devastated, but then hopefully we could buy from the United States, but then prices would still go up and our most vulnerable people in society wouldn't be able to even afford basic groceries, right? So that's why I'm studying disease resistance and plant immunity. Even though I'm not, doing, I'm not doing applied research, I'm doing a little bit of applied research more recently, but I'm interested in mechanism. So I wanna do what I am interested in and good at, and it still will help in the long run. And I can say that there have been some reports lately where DIR1, lipid transfer proteins are also known to have antimicrobial activity. DIR1 doesn't seem to, because it seems to have been co-opted to be a part of systemic acquired resistance. But usually plants have like a gene family of 20 to 100 lipid transfer proteins. So in some other crops like barley, and I can't forget, I can't remember the other crop, but if you overexpress the barley DIR1 gene, it does provide protection against a number of pathogens. So <clears throat> I like to think that, you know, my research discovered DIR1 and it's important in resistance and it has encouraged other people to study it in crops. And it it may end up out there in some of these crop cultivars that farmers actually grow.
1: Yeah, so like on the topic of um, seeing DIR1 in different economically important um, um, crops, um, how does, would you say your work or work on Arabidopsis, Arabidopsis thaliana tra- translate to other economically important crops? And so you mentioned how it could be applied to, for example, enhance these crops. So could you talk a little bit about that? Sure, so
2: <clears throat> other people's research where they work on these receptors that perceive pathogens. So people are trying to now They found some really good receptors that allow them allow the plant to perceive a particular pathogen. So they will give that information to the plant breeders and then they will try to breed that gene into their most important, highest yielding core, say, and say during all their breeding for yield, that resistance gene dropped by the wayside because they weren't selecting for it. But now the Arabidopsis researchers have figured out, yeah, that one is really good. So then they try to put it back into the crop and also select for yield because you've got to have both, right? So that's, that is ongoing. And all of this research uh, where we know more about the gene families and all these resistance receptors allows plant breeders to then take that information from Arabidopsis sequence their own crop and look for those genes because they can't do the mechanistic work on say canola because it's a tetraploid yeah not a diploid it's got two genomes in it and there are some versions of canola that have three genomes three diploid genomes that's hard to figure out unless you already know what you want to look for so I think that's how that's one of the ways that basic plant immunity or fundamental plant immune research is helping and getting this, inform- this these useful genes into crops. And another is that we know more about systemic acquired resistance. We know about some of their, some small signaling molecules that maybe dr one is carrying around, but we know they're important for SAR as well. And we know that we can spray them on our plants and induce a SAR-like response. So there are people working on looking for immune-inducing compounds, and then chemists who try to make them more soluble so that they can enter the plant more easily. And I'm actually working with a company where the chemists provide formulations to my lab, and then we check to see if their formulations induce resistance to bacteria, in cucumber because they don't have any collaborators that work on cucumber and my lab also works on cucumber. And cucumber is a big greenhouse crop, right? Almost all the cucumbers in the grocery store are from greenhouses and a lot of them are local greenhouses and the tomatoes and the peppers. So if you look at where things come from, if it's Canada and it's a, greenha- it's a cucumber or a pepper or a you know little tomato, It's probably from a local greenhouse in Southern Ontario.
0: Awesome. Thank you for sharing that, Dr. Cameron. This just goes to show how relevant this research is for a larger society, right? While, as you said, you're not directly involved in applied research, right? Your research still informs industry, still informs how you could bake better pesticides to make sure you know we don't devastate our crops in the in the seasons, right? So it's right. awesome to hear. So that's great to hear. And as we near the end of this podcast, Dr. Cameron, we want to touch base with you about about the role of undergraduate students in your research labs and how they are involved in your process for elucidating all these cool stuff about plants, right? So mm-hmm. the first question about undergraduates is how have undergraduates been involved in your research, first of all. And could you give like an example of maybe a past project or two that past undergraduate students have taken on in your lab, uh, maybe under your uh, graduate student supervision?
2: Right. So every undergrad in my lab has their own project, and it often relates to what the grad students are doing, but it is separate. The grad students train the undergrads in all the techniques they need to know because they don't know how to run our equipment and stuff, even if they learned about it once in in a lab. They don't know how to use our equipment. So we teach them. And I would say almost every undergrad for the last many years has done an age related resistance project because it's a little bit more forgiving. The pathway turns on in a regular manner, whereas SARS is a bit more challenging for undergrads. And lately, we, from this transcriptome, we have lists of genes that appear to be involved because the gene is expressed during age-related resistance, but we have to actually prove it. So we can order mutants in those genes from the Arabidopsis biological resource. They keep seeds of mutants in almost all the Arabidopsis genes, and there's 28,000 of them, more than in the human genome, <laughs> have more genes than including humans, (laughs) because they're very good biochemists, right? Because Mm -hmm. everybody eats them. So they have to have lots of defensive combats. But that's a subject for another day. So we order mutants in these genes, and they send us the seeds, and the undergrads grow the plants, and then they test to see if you are a mutant in this gene that is upregulated during ARR, are you also defective for ARR? So it, do you need that function for a full ARR response? And so it's, this, undergrads learn classic genetics and classic microbiology. And I also ask them to use their bioinformatics knowledge that they've gained, whether they took the third year bioinformatics course in the biology department, or if they haven't, then the grad students help them to find out everything we can find out about this gene. So is it a member of a gene family? So this is a problem in plants. Plants have gene families, animals don't have this. There's so much redundancy in plants and I don't have time to speculate why that is in terms of their fitness and evolution. Um, But say you knock out a gene and it's a member of a gene family, you might not see any phenotype because the other genes can still provide the function. So, we need to know that. So, the undergrads get to learn genetics, microbiology, plant pathology, and they do some bioinformatics and they get to learn. And, you know, there's lots of resources online to learn about these things in an independent way so that they have a wet lab component and a sort of a computer in silico component. And that provides us with very useful information because we have too many genes to look at my grad students cannot look at them all. So every year, the new crop of undergrads, usually four-ish, sometimes more, if we're lucky and have someone in the summer like Daphne, um, they get a couple genes and they test to see, are they necessary for ARR? And they do some bioinformatics on them. So I think that almost everyone does a project that has some component of that. And they might also, sometimes every once in a while, people get to do a SAR project as well, but it it depends on the person and their, you know, uh, do they have a molecular background and that sort of thing.
0: Mm -hmm. And just as a follow-up question to that, because you're Research uh, utilizes uh, like an interdisciplinary approach, like biochem, biology. Do you take students outside of the biology department, like students from biology, but also maybe biochemistry, life sciences as well? So,
2: I have taken biochemistry students who took my plant biology courses, but the main criterion for me in my lab is that people are really interested in plant biology. So. Plant biology, fundamental plant biology is underfunded in Canada compared to medical biology. So I want to spend my resources on people who are hopefully going to end up in plant biology somehow, research or maybe they end up in, they work for the Canadian Food Inspection Agency, I've had students who do that. I, so I want them to have taken at least one of my courses and shown me they have an interest in plant biology. Because I wanna train the next generation of plant biologists, whether it's research or whatever they end up doing.
1: Yeah, so what else would you say that you look for in potential applicants um, other than um, what we just discussed? Enthusiasm.
2: I mean, I can't expect them to have the lab skills. Very few people have them. And now in COVID, nobody has any lab skills, right? Um, So it's enthusiasm and an interest in plants and research. And, you know, obviously there's a, you can't have too low of grades because you need to be able to handle the stress of the research project while doing your other courses. And I have found that if students have below a B plus, they really, really struggle and they don't do well. And yeah, it's not it's not fun for anyone. <laughs> mm, definitely. So, you,
0: oh, so that makes sense because you want the most well-rounded students because they end up the they end up being the ones that are the most successful. And as a last question, do you have any sort of potential advice that you have for undergraduate students who are interested in working for your lab? Well,
2: um, I mean it seems as with COVID and students having less access to, uh, you know, labs, course-based labs, there's a huge interest in um, research. So I have many more students interested in a, you know, 4C12, that's the biology 4C12 um, thesis or the, the six unit project. And right now I do have a biochemistry student. Actually, she's one of those biodiscovery discovery, and I don't know what oh, it's the B,
0: called. The BDC program? The yes, bio, yeah, The biomedical right. drug and research discovery program. Right. I think.
2: <clears throat> um, so, you know, people are coming earlier and earlier to interview and I guess students need to start early. And in biology, you know, we've been saying that you should be writing to people in september october of your 3rd year and i'm sure i had more than i've ever i interviewed a lot of students um 15 and normally it's you know 7 or something And I am actually taking more students than I used to. Like four students is almost too many. It's hard to pack everyone Mm -hmm. in there. And especially during COVID, we were only allowed to have three people in the lab at a time. So we have a sign-up sheet and it's hard, but yeah, you need to start early. You need to write an email that isn't long, but that says why you're interested. And it can't just be because plants are cool or, you know, zebrafish are cool. You need to show that maybe you read something of the person's work and that you find it interesting and maybe why. And it only has to be a couple sentences. But, you know, I have, I've interviewed students and I'll say, so why do you want to work with me? And they'll say, oh, because you're so nice. (laughs) Which is nice, they think that from a course or, Um, plants are cool. And I'll say, oh yeah, I know, why do you think that? And they can't tell me a reason. So I guess I want people to have thought about it for a second or two before they come to the interview. And I guess maybe a very good piece of advice is that you are joining a research lab. You are using research dollars, which are paid for by the taxpayer, your parents, and me, I pay taxes and all the professors we pay taxes. So it isn't just about you. Yes, we are educating you because it's a course, but you could contribute to our research. And I would say all my undergrads contribute. We we you know even if say the gene I give them isn't needed for ARR. Now we know that. So we don't have to work on that anymore. And yes, that isn't going to get published, but it's still useful to my lab and it's a, it's uh we're a team everyone in my lab when you join my lab you're part of my team and if you succeed I succeed and vice versa
1: yeah thank you so much for that wonderful advice and insight And honestly, with that, that brings us to really the end of our podcast. And thank you so much for coming on, Dr. Cameron, and joining Mm -hmm. us to discuss your research on plant microbe interactions. And we learned so much about why plants are super cool. And maybe if we interviewed with you, any of our our audience could give you an actual reason. Um, (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Um, Yeah, and it's really cool to understand why we should study plants and how they're relevant to us in terms of food security, um, the economy and climate change and so much more. And like I said, it was a pleasure having you on. And thank you once again for joining us.
2: (laughs) You're most welcome. It was fun.